Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Dr. Matt von Conrad, the head of botanical collections at the Field Museum in Chicago. Welcome to Seldom Said, Matt. Uh, thanks, Bob. It's a real pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is ours, I can assure you. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Sure. Um, I could be here all afternoon sharing that. But now, very briefly, I um, arrived from Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2001, and I just completed my PhD at the University of Auckland back home. And... Um, I arrived to take up my current position. I sort of wear multiple hats, and one of those is collections manager for a group of plants called bryophytes and pteridophytes, which are essentially early land plants and ferns. And um, I've never looked back. I'm living the dream, Robert. That sounds marvelous. Uh, I'm sure we're all happy for you. Most people who have experienced New Zealand uh, experience it through film, Lord of the Rings and so forth, but it's a magnificently beautiful place. Do you have intentions of staying here permanently or returning home? Oh, no, this is recorded, Robert. That's not, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I shall forego that question then. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> No, so I mean, I get that a lot. Um, we we interact with the public a lot, and we try to share our uh, what we do with the general public. And as soon as I open my mouth, people realise that I'm from a different country, and inevitably, it's either Australia or New Zealand. Um, but you're right, New Zealand's a beautiful country. But um, I think all countries are really beautiful. I mean, there's some amazing places in the US. Um, I think the attraction about New Zealand is it's it's a small country where a lot of um, outdoor, uh, just amazing sort of scenery and activities are available in a short um, um, space. Like you can be skiing and surfing within an hour. Uh, but all countries are really, you know, I think I've been, I've been very, very fortunate. Part of my position, I've been to many countries in the world and um, just seen some stunning places. As for going back home, um, actually, my when I arrived, I you know sort of have these five-year plans, and it's now 19 years later, um, and I don't see myself going back home anytime soon. I just, I mean, there are opportunities here in the US, and part of my position that <clears throat> simply don't occur back home. Um, I'll just give you a brief anecdote. I mean, I've been to more places in New Zealand from based here in the US and funded by um, US institutions and so on than I did when I was back home. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living. Uh, there's, a, there's fantastic opportunities here, and I, I can't see myself going back home. I, I, of course, I really miss it. Uh, that's that's hard. There's always cultural um, differences, and um, still having to sort of adjust even after all this time. But um, just having a great opportunity here, and I don't want to I don't want to sort of give that up in the near future. I can certainly appreciate that. Do you feel, Matt, that you've reached a point professionally where you carry your career with you? Um, what, what do you mean? In a sense, uh, Einstein at Princeton, he was simply Einstein no matter where he was, and Princeton was where he was. Right. Do you feel you've reached that point? Well, I think a lot of, um, a lot of scientists, my grandfather was a, was a professor in physics. Um, it doesn't matter, I think, to your point, where you are or if you're retired or what stage in life you are. Um, it doesn't matter where I will be, I will... I just have a lot of passion for what I do, and um, yeah, I will, I will, I, I will carry that wherever I am. 
There's an apocryphal quotation that I've often used, perhaps too much so, but it's the French phrase, je suis un citoyen de le monde, I'm a citizen of the world. Do you feel at this stage, doing what you've done and coming from where you've been, that every country is your country when you take off your cap and hoot? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I do regard, it's, it's funny that you bring that up, um, because citizen, you know, the, the word citizen these days sort of has, can invoke sort of a strong meaning, um, you know, with the, with the polit political situation. Um, I first and foremost regard myself as sort of a citizen of the world. And it's interesting, we were just, we've, we've had this debate actually at Field Museum and I lead a lot of citizen science events. And one, this, I think this came out of um, the California Academy of Sciences and the Field Museum has adopted this as well. But we're, we're switching our language actually from citizen science to community science. And, you know, because citizen, it does have this um, individual, so I have a train going on in the background. Um, you know, there's a sort of an individualistic um, connotation behind it, perhaps. And coming from New Zealand, we are more sort of community-minded. So I don't actually go into a country thinking I'm a citizen of the country or... Um, I, I regard myself as a guest when I'm, whenever I'm going into um, going to the field and visiting different cultures and um, just, yeah. Later uh, next month, I will be interviewing a theoretical physicist whose training uh, is based in Russia and now in the states. He's reached the point where he feels science is above politics. I know you have some adverse feelings about what citizen means, mm. but do you feel that science itself transcends the political venue? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. And in fact, in my own sort of work, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Um, however, even in the scientific world, you have to sort of navigate um, Political, I guess when it comes down to whenever you're dealing with humans, you have to deal with politics. Um, but I totally agree with you. And that's sort of my sort of whole philosophy. Even when working with people, I try to um, see the, the, the best in what different scientists can offer. And, um, you know, some scientists, they do, you do encounter people with... Um, uh, strong opinions, um, but you sort of try to cut through that uh, to just be successful in your, in your science. Most people who engage in something as intense and advanced as your career is always point to an epiphanal moment, the Damascus moment in their childhood or their life where suddenly they realize that's the star, that's what I follow, that's what I intend to do. Was there such an epiphanal moment for you in regard to botany? <clears throat> yeah, I was actually really lucky, uh, Robert, for as long as I can remember, and you can talk to all my friends and family, early childhood. Um, I always really enjoyed um, going into the garden and planting. My mum my, and stepfather had a what we call a market garden, and that was sort of a, uh, you'd grow produce on a smaller scale just to sort of supplement our income, and we used to sell it to the local grocery stores and so on, and I just really enjoyed that. And then getting back to your earlier point about um, New Zealand's amazing sort of um, – flora and fauna the outdoors is just is really accessible um, I used to live in a city of 1 million people and you could be 30 minutes drive out of the inner city and be in a uh, pristine forest and so I always just had this curiosity as a as a child about um, when we'd go we call it tramping I think you guys call it hiking um, 
And I just had this sort of natural curiosity about the flora and fauna. And then, um, I don't know, for as young as I can remember, I was just really into plants. And I thought I'd actually gone to a career into horticulture. That was sort of my ambition. And then I actually got into university and discovered that there's just there's this whole world that we don't know about. And I actually switched switched paths. So I was just really fortunate, Robert, at a, at a young age. I think another, this is a, a personal thing, but my, um, my parents were social workers and I was in total admiration of them, but I could see how other people, no matter how hard they worked for them, they just treated them really badly. And I thought, man, that's not, I can't deal with humans. Plants seem uh, pretty harmless. There's something spiritual about growth, something perennial and perpetual. How do you feel it possible to instill that love of nature in general to the young people who come into the field? How do you instill and transpose that emotion you just shared with us? Yeah, so you're quite right, Robert. I remember from a young age, I got a lot of satisfaction um, just to be able to grow our own food and um, and deliver sort of hamper baskets of produce to relatives and friends and so on. And it was really satisfying that you could actually um, uh, watch your things, plants grow and and so on. The irony in all of this, though, Robert, is um, so I started off with a passion for growing plants and keeping them alive. Now at the Field Museum, um, I help lead a collection of over 3 million dried and dead plants. So there's sort of a, a bit of an irony there. Nonetheless, getting to your point about how we sort of you know, go about inspiring the, the younger generation, which I think is really important. It's something that I uh, have a great passion for. And um, I think there's a there's all sorts of novel ways that we can inspire people. And one of them is um, actually getting them involved and cutting down the barrier of science. So a lot of, I think a lot of people have a misperception of scientists um, in lab coats and stuck in a lab. and But science can actually be a lot of fun, and it's actually a very broad, diverse uh, discipline. And one of the things we started doing with these sort of community science events, you can sort of hop online or you can participate in person. And we've had uh, youngsters as young as four. I remember when I was a scientist on the floor, I was sharing what I was doing with the general public, and uh, we have these these online platforms where you can participate as a scientist. And young Eve, she was only four years old, she visited the museum with her family. <clears throat> they came to see all the exhibits and what have you, and I, I snapped her up and asked her if she wanted to be a scientist for a moment. And she was sitting at this kiosk for like half an hour and didn't want to go to the exhibits. And then she went home and... Um, uh, she went home and – this will bring a tear to your eye, Robert. I hope you've got some tissues there. She went home and drew this lovely drawing. You probably can't see me, but I've got um, my hair in a bun. She had my hair down. She had a speech bubble saying new species and all of these beautiful little drawings of leaves and so on. And so by her participating, this really sort of resonated with her and we've actually become pen pals. I think she's 10 years old now. Um, but it's all, it's all about, for me, I think, breaking down the, the, the barrier of science and, um, and that everyone can actually participate. Much of academia, especially in the early ages in this country, seems predicated on grading, categorizing, channeling, telling people what they can and can't do, and then giving them everything from A to F. Do you avoid a grading system when you deal with young people? Do you avoid those judgments? Yeah, so in my, um, where I work at the museum, I don't actually do or do some teaching, but it's very rare. Um, so I'm not actually sort of involved in a lot of formal 
education as such. Uh, a lot of what I participate in is more informal education. And so I'm not sort of involved in the, um, the grading side of things. That being said, we do do these uh, large community science events where we actually network with a lot of, lot of universities and colleges um, around the Chicago area, including some Chicago public schools. <clears throat> and they um, help us transcribe scientific labels and we don't do a, a grade as much as we sort of encourage folks because we do work with educators. And it's sort of um, not a grade as such, but it's sort of a scale um, and trying to encourage them if, they've, if they haven't correctly done something that, you know, this is not a, um, a, a negative. It's, it's part, of the, part of your learning environment. I would imagine it's time to deal with a basic question that is, uh, give us a kind of viable composite of your day from entering the museum to locking your office door in the evening. What are your duties for a given workday? Uh, <clears throat> well, Robert, <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, that's actually what I really love about my job, about this position, is it, it ranges, and these days I've taken on um, a part administrative um, cap. So just to sort of recap, I'm, I'm a collection manager for a group of plants that are related to uh, mosses and ferns. And so we have half a million um, dried plant specimens of uh, that group of plants. And then I help administer the botanical collections, which includes staff and students of, um, depending on the time of year, up to 20, 30 people. And on top of that, I also uh, manage some specific um, collection um, digitization projects, quite large scale. So these are capturing digital images of labels and digital images of specimens and getting these online. Uh, to the general public and to other scientists all around the world to help accelerate um, our scientific documentation and discovery. And then I have some administrative duties as part of the institution. So my day-to-day -day, um, can really vary uh, from, and then this summer, this past summer, we had 18 interns, including eight high school students. So that kept me um, kept me pretty busy. So my general day to day can can really range um, depending on the time of year. But a lot of uh, troubleshooting, helping um, staff with with questions that they have, um, and just sort of helping some of these manage some of these large scale projects. And then pretty much in my own time, I do uh, research as well. So I've published over 150 scientific peer-reviewed papers. And uh, right now, you've caught me right in the middle of a um, writing a large proposal. Uh, again, this gets back to what I discussed earlier. The opportunities here in the U.S. are just phenomenal. I mean, I, it's just absolutely amazing to me because I come from a very small country of about 4 million people. And it's economy of scale, but... Right now, I'm sort of embedded at home, and I worked till like three o'clock this morning working on this proposal, where it involves a lot of institutions from out throughout the US, and we're trying to form a network of about 20 institutions, and we are submitting a, um, a proposal to digitize or capture digital images of the labels and transcribe those of about 1.5 million um, mosses and then this other group of plants called liverworts and lichens that you might be familiar with. And then I also, I'm really fortunate as part of my job and it's actually something that I, I really live for and that is I do a lot of field work. So I'm very fortunate I've done field work in many places throughout the world but especially in the um, in the Southern Hemisphere and Southern Chile and Australasia and the islands of the South Pacific. 
And there I can spend, uh, we had one project supported by the National Science Foundation where I would spend one month every year on a boat um, going from remote island to island collecting plants. So it can really, my day-to-day -day can really vary, Robert, on the time of year and um, um, and the priorities um, uh, for that day. And then I can work in, walk in and what I think I had planned can totally change. It's a marvelous visualization of your career life. It would uh, seem then that one of the prerogatives of any scientist or any researcher, and this is something that's been reinforced by my conversations with others of the same venue, there needs to be the ability to write a grant. Do you agree with that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think... Um I strongly believe in that, and um, um, I, it also comes down to motivation because these these grants are not easy, and no one likes to be rejected. Uh, I've just been really fortunate um, to have received several National Science Foundation um, awards and a lot of other sort of federal federally supported awards and then by the National Geographic Society and so on. And I think that's a really important part of the, uh, the job um, and our role. Of course, the, the Field Museum, it's a private institution. Um, I'm amazed that the, the philanthropy here in the U.S. is just phenomenal. I haven't lived in um, a lot of other countries, but I know just back in New Zealand, for instance, there's there's not this strong, really strong culture of giving. And um, so there's, there's sort of two ways to, to try to seek um, funding support, and that is through philanthropy and uh, foundations and so on, and then through the federal government. Um, and so the opportunities on, on both those... Um, fronts uh, just really amaze me I sort of it's almost like a, a drug when I when I first found out I could apply and eligible for these National Science Foundation um, grants I mean we've received millions of dollars to study mosses and liverworts for goodness sake I mean that just does not happen back home so if you want to um, achieve a lot and 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 embark on these large-scale projects, then funding and writing grant proposals is a big part of that. Methinks you're somewhat uh, modest about your achievements, Matt. Uh, I've read some of your work. I'd like to research a guest before we have the conversation on air. Given those circumstances, you strike me as a fine writer. Is it always something you could do? Or did you have to contour your skills to fit the need? Oh, Robert, if, if you only knew, <laughs> it takes me ages to, to form a paragraph. <laughs> um, but I actually, I do enjoy uh, writing. Um, I don't know if I'm, I don't think I'm particularly good at it, uh, but I do enjoy it. And it's also surrounding yourself with or connecting with, um, like I, I sort of, have been fortunate to be mentored uh, throughout my career, and I'd I'd never be afraid to sort of reach out to people to review my work before I formally submit anything. And so it's really important to seek sort of criticism. When I first started off in my career, and I'd get a lot of red ink back from either my mentors or from from colleagues, I'd sort of go, oh my goodness, you know, I'd, I'd sort of um, it breaks your soul. But then over time, I realized it's actually, um, it's a very good thing. And so I don't know if I'm particularly good at writing, but I do enjoy it. And I just sort of seek a lot of feedback as well, which I think is really important. One would think that uh, being involved with growing and living things, returning to uh, our earlier topic or question about politics, does it presuppose that you must become a political activist? So much is going on in regard to environmental politics. Uh, I think 
I mean, to your earlier point, how science sort of is above politics, um, I just try to focus on the the evidence and we have to, I mean, actually, you know, when I actually first started out, Robert, this is something that sort of I, I'm a little bit, pa I am passionate about. I was actually the president of our environmental um, um, society back at my university. And I, I, I thought I might sort of get a mix of sort of plant science and conservation. I thought I might go off into that angle. Um, but I think it's really important to realize we all have a part to play. And my role right now, I think the, the best that I can do personally is um, um, help document and describe what we have before it goes extinct and help share that with the general public and help share why um, it's very important to protect our natural resources and our natural um, environment and to make people more empowered, especially we do this a lot when we visit um, countries that may not have the regulations in place that other countries do. And we try to make uh, landowners or the, the local uh, people more empowered in what they have so that they can be better informed in their, in their decisions. And I, so I think that's really important. Um, and then for me personally, I'm also on the International Union for Conservation and Nature. And so I feel I can make important contributions on, on that front as well. You use the phrase, before it goes extinct. Do you subscribe to the theory that change is inevitable, as is extinction? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's a really good good question, Robert. I mean, you just have to look at the, um, the fossil record and um, throughout uh, Earth's history. There have been uh, some large-scale extinction events, and uh, sure, extinction is, is inevitable. Um, however, what is worrying is humans... Um, sort of input into that and the acceleration of the loss of our natural habitats um, clearly there's destruction of, of rainforests and uh, clearing of land and this happens back in, in my country in New Zealand as well um, that's, that is human induced and so that is accelerating uh, definitely um, extinction and go, scientists would go so far as we are now in the next major extinction crisis uh, but it, a lot of it is human, human induced and our uh, behavior. There's recently been a great deal of writing and research in regard to bringing back certain species in Russia, the woolly mammoth for instance do you believe it's theoretically possible to bring back plant species that have grown extinct? Um, yeah, I, I mean to say, Robert, I, I don't want to get your audience down either, you know? <laughs> no, I, I think we can appreciate but, it. <laughs> um, but it is, it is very important to share with the audience that we are going through this, this crisis right now and we can, all, we can all react to it in our different roles. Um, as to um, bringing back plants and so on, I mean, you know, uh, in theory, um, a lot of things, I guess, are possible. Um, I know with plants, plants are sort of unusual in that um, there, I mean, there are some plants that uh, could be extinct, but they may exist in the seed bank, for example. Um, so I know I was actually very fortunate to, to, um, to visit Svalbard, which is north of Norway. You may have heard about it. That's where they have an international seed bank. And so they've actually, and they keep them, um, in freezing, below freezing. And so, I mean, if you keep seeds under certain conditions, 
and those plants happen to go extinct for sure, it's possible to uh, bring those back. Um, I think what you're talking about may be more on the molecular side and sort of injecting genes from one organism into another and so on. And, um, yeah, that's sort of outside my realm, but I know, um, uh, you know, anything is possible. I was basically referring to uh, the molecular level of transposing things into reality, but also using that as a jump-off point to transporting us to a different time and place. The environment of the United States has changed so radically. You know, people saying they found dinosaur relics and ferns, fern imprints, fossils in North Dakota that are millions of years old. One wonders whether things can be brought back to the way they were with that extinction crisis we're experiencing and whether we should bring things back if indeed we can. Yeah, well, that's a, um, a, a, I mean, that's a really deep philosophical question, Robert, that, um, I mean, scientists are, are challenging this as we speak. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very deep philosophical question. Um, coming from, um, I, and it's, it's also, um, there's a lot of political and sort of social implications um, I know for from New Zealand for example we have a ban on uh, sort of genetic modification so our corn um, the sweet corn none of it is genetically modified whereas everything here is and so this I, I don't think um, socially and culturally we haven't caught up with the technology and uh, that's something that we we will be confronting as a society. Now, if I were to develop an, an initial composite of everything you do, head of collections, manager, curator, etc., etc., ad infinitum, which of those hats do you most enjoy wearing? Uh, I, I think I alluded it to before my... I, I get the, the greatest um, pleasure um, being out in the field, being in the middle of nowhere. Um, just really fortunate to get to some really remote places on the planet. Some places it may take us like a week to get to by plane and then um, by smaller plane and then by boat and then by walking. Um, so I, I really enjoy that component. As soon as I s sort of don't have that opportunity or um, no longer able to do that, that, that would be, um, I mean, it's just such a, a big part of my life and that, that I live for. And then this, these times I, I used to really, well, I still do, I mean, get a real buzz out of publishing a scientific paper. And um, you sort of go, oh, that's pretty neat. You know, that's pretty cool. Just describe maybe a new species to science. However, um, this day and age, an equally satisfying part of my job is, like I expressed before with Young Eve, just seeing, interacting with the general public. We have what's now called a collections club where volunteers come to the museum every quarter and they'll come on a Saturday and Sunday Right, wide range of um, backgrounds, and they contribute to our science and help curate specimens and database and hands-on activities. And um, we just had a, a an event a couple of uh, weeks ago, and we had some sixth graders, and they made me a hat with some ferns and mosses on it, and they were just, when I showed them the collections, they were just in such awe. And it was a reminder of um, just the, the amazing institution that I have the opportunity to work in. And just to see the, the excitement on these children's faces. Um, so I think that is a really, um, that's what really drives me these days is just sharing what we do, exciting the next generation, and then even not the next generation of scientists, but um maybe professionals who have retired and they, they just really um, into helping um, accelerate what we do.
And I really enjoy that. You did allude to the idea of loving fieldwork above all. I would like to use that predisposition you described and ask the question as to whether you feel there is a place of, of equivalent value in the eyes of government, in the eyes of grant writers and so forth, for pure science, just doing something for the express purpose of doing it, not knowing what the result will be, and not initially caring what it will be, not having focus. Do you subscribe to that idea? Yes, and actually, um, that's uh, I'll get on my little um, soapbox again, um, you know, because you know, people go on about places like New Zealand and are beautiful, lovely and green and what an amazing place to live and why are you here and so on. Um, but one of the things from an outsider inside um, is, and it's right to your point, with US funding opportunities, um, it's all outward looking and maybe high risk and a lot of um, funding opportunities may support just purely for science sake. So I've been really fortunate enough to get a, a couple of um, funds that were supported from the National Science Foundation on a couple of projects where they supported us um, hiring, a, hiring a ship, going down to southern Chile, going from island to island for a month, every year for five years. And our goal was simply that there was no um, economic benefit. This was purely just to find out what was growing there. Of course, it, it, that provides the foundation for a lot of other science disciplines, like conservation management and has all sorts of conservation application and so on. But really, it was just fundamental um, what was growing there and what are the, the the distribution patterns and so on. And it was really just for science sake. And a lot of countries don't actually subscribe to that. I mean, I, I know coming from New Zealand where I would have to justify really strongly um, why I would be doing field work in another part of the world and not in New Zealand. So I think a lot of scientific institutions um, uh, might be insular. And one thing that I'm um, amazed at with, with the U.S. and funding opportunities through the federal government is that they're very outward. And then um, getting back to philanthropy, no one back home, we haven't talked about liverworts yet, Robert, which are my favorite organisms. I know it sounds like a disease or something. Um, but no one back home would fund me to do research on this group of organisms. And yet I've had private donors who, um, they have, they know that they're plants and they're small plants and that they're important, but they would, um, help fund me to go on field trips in the South Pacific. I mean, those opportunities, um, that, that sort of culture of giving, it really is a U.S. phenomenon and doesn't happen in many parts of the world. You seem to have mastered that ability to look across the dance floor and direct the person to the song you like. You mentioned liverworts. Can you describe them then for the audience at large? Oh, I'd, I'd love to, Robert. <laughs> um, so liverworts, and I, I mentioned they sound like, when, I, when, I'm on the general, when I'm on the floor talking to the general public and um, if I just shout out, hey, I study liverworts, it sounds like a disease or something, and people want to back away from you. Um, but they're actually a, a really interesting group of plants. Uh, they're related to mosses. So the audience might be familiar with uh, mosses that are sort of grown in the backyard, or they might see these small, compact plants in the, in the pavement or growing on fields, um, hanging from trees and tropical um, habitats and so on. And so they're moss-like plants, but they are, are very small. And don't know if you can see me, Robert, but I'm wearing glasses now. I spend a lot of my time looking down the microscope, and I swear I'm half blind because of that. But these plants are, are very small in nature, 
And they, uh, interestingly, they have a really interesting evolutionary history. And so they are the living descendants of these earliest land plants that made the transition from water to land over 400 million years ago. And they're still around today. And they also, because they're so small, they respond rapidly to changes in the environment. So they're ecologically uh, very significant as well and can sort of be um, indicators for the health of the environment. For those in the listening audience who are much moved by what you're saying, which is, I shall be honest with you, quite interesting, how can they get involved? How can they be involved with what you're doing at the field? Yeah, so um, there's a number of um, uh, ways to be involved. Um, if any of the audience is in the Chicagoland area, we have on-site programs. But we also have um, online activities where, uh, and we partner here with Zooniverse, which are really leaders in online um, science activities. And you can actually go and visit Zooniverse and participate in any number of your, um, your favorite uh, disciplines or hobbies ranging from uh, transcribing old field guide notebooks. Um, they have um, uh, transcribing the, the logs from, from old um, shipping um, vessels and so on. But at the Field Museum, you can visit Zooniverse, and we have uh, several projects there where people can get involved. Some of them are identifying um, live plants. And we do a lot of scientists at the museum do a lot of work in the tropics, especially in places like Peru. And we have a live image um, library of tens of thousands of images of plants, of images taken in the wild. And we ask community scientists to help um, make some observations, maybe the um, the photograph has flowers and the color of the flowers and the, is it fruiting and so on. So there's a lot of information locked up in an image that we can unlock and put in a database and that will help accelerate um, our whole process of scientific documentation and discovery. So there's a lot of avenues. Judging things as you've just described from the minute to the large, is that essentially the core belief of your use of the term? And you've used it uh, more than periodically, the term plant power? Uh, well, I, yeah, I'm always uh, into plant power, Robert. Um, I'm just, when I try to communicate, especially with um, the, the younger audience, um, of course, everyone gets into dinosaurs, you know, at the, at the museum. We're famous for our Sioux, um, um, our T-Rex, and so on. And I just try and reinforce that um, plants before dinosaurs, I, you know, I mentioned that these early land plants over 400 million years ago are still around today. And just the fact that plants, I mean, they're responsible for the air we breathe, the, the clothes we wear, um, the food we eat, medicine, and so on. And I think one thing we struggle with um, as scientists and even as a, as a society is sort of plant blindness. And so, you know, people, it's, it's very easy to connect with people with dinosaurs and mammals and birds and so on. Um, but plants sort of slip off the radar. There is a a quote attributed to the actor John Goodman. He was asked, uh, how do you prepare to be an actor? And he said, have a backup career. Now, an associate, a colleague uh, who had worked at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, took the same view that telling an undergraduate who wants to work in museum work that there are infinite possibilities for employment, he felt was naive what would you say to that person whose mother or father sitting at the table says, I'll pay for college, but you want to do what? 
How do you deal with that? Yeah, it's very funny you uh, mentioned that, Robert. I've got, um, I can almost hear it just ringing in my ears. Um, so when I was doing my PhD and I was, I was telling my parents, hey, um, you know, I've decided to do a PhD in liverworts. And they're going, what? You know, number one, what on earth are they? And then number two, how on earth are you going to get a job? Um, and I actually had a professor who said the same thing to me as well. But I thought at the time um, I wanted to, you know, life is short. And I wanted, if I was going to do a PhD and lose a good chunk of my life because it's uh, not an easy um, endeavor, I wanted to do something that I had a lot of passion for and that I really enjoyed. And science is, it is broad. I mean, I had no idea that I'd end up in this amazing institution at the Field Museum in my present role. I really didn't know that positions like this existed. And so, you know, I would encourage people to pursue um, uh, museum careers. If you're interested in the in natural history, um, I actually, you know, when I started working in a museum, I didn't realize just how diverse it, it, it was. I mean, you can be into bioinformatics and big data, especially these days with genomics. Um, you can be into computer science, um, IT support. You know, maybe natural history is not your number one um, um, sort of career path, but you're really interested in natural history, but you're, you're into human resources or philanthropy, um, exhibits, uh, learning, connecting science with learning. So there's just so many different paths. I must ask you then to extend that comment you just made still further. How did you become involved in forensics? Uh, yeah, well, that's an interesting question, Robert. I guess <clears throat> if the FBI want to track you down and find you, they will uh, they'll give you a call. And that's what happened. Um, I think through someone, through someone, through someone, I guess our scientific community is also very small. Um, I got a phone call from the uh, FBI wanting to know if we could help with an investigation. And uh, this was actually in, in Chicago, and there's a, this colloquially known as the Burr Oak uh, Cemetery scandal. And uh, one thing led to another. So investigators wanted to know uh, what this plant was, they'd found this, well, they didn't even, they didn't say it was a plant, they, this green stuff. It was buried with some human remains that had been dug up and then discarded and dumped from a, from, um, a cemetery. And it turned out investigators found over 300 bodies that had been dug up from old grave sites, and then they dumped the bodies, and then they're reselling the burial plots. So this is an absolute horrendous um, crime. And um, it was a very high-profile uh, cemetery. Um, there happened to be a lot of um, African-American um, civil rights leaders and politicians and so on, notwithstanding, you know, people's family. And so investigators wanted to know uh, what this plant was, how did it get there, and then most importantly, how it had been buried um, in the soil with the human remains and for how long. And interestingly, um, so it turned out it was a moss, and we were able to actually use the collection at the Field Museum and so I can remember, um, haven't really talked about the herbarium, this collection of dried plants, but it's like a library, and there's a wealth of information there, and we have um, collections going back hundreds of years, spanning time. So it turned out we had exactly the same species that was this evidence, 
We found it in the collection and we had the same species collected over time from here in Cook County. And then I went out to the crime scene. Um, you, could you could make a sort of a CSI drama out of this, Robert. Um, we went out to the crime scene and the plant, the, the particular species, was not growing in the crime scene. So that meant that it couldn't arrive in the mound of soil by accident. It didn't arrive there by wind or by an animal. It had to be purposely sort of buried there in some fashion. And then I uh, surveyed the cemetery, which was um, a number of acres, and we found the same species growing in an area of the cemetery where investigators suspected the uh, bodies had been dug up from. And so we could answer two of those questions. So we knew what the plant was. We had a high degree of probability where the plant was from. And so it had probably been um, dug up with the human remains and then um, buried. And then thirdly, and most importantly, this was the critical uh, question, and that is how long the sample had been buried for, or this piece of evidence had been buried for. And we could use the collection and sort of study um, these collections over time. We had the, uh, the piece of evidence. I had a fresh sample. And I could basically put a timestamp on how old this had been, how long this had been buried in the mound of soil for. And I came up to the, with the conclusion it was about six months, less than six months. And science is all about having independent lines of evidence. And this sort of gets back to your plant power, uh, Robert. It turned out there was a, um, a blade of grass and a tree root buried in the same mound of soil. And all three scientists independently came up with the same conclusion. And that was important because the accused was saying that this happened well, five years ago or 10 years ago. They weren't even at the scene of the crime. However, our evidence put them at the scene of the crime, and so investigators had um, physical evidence, which was critical to their case. The way you've described it, it would seem that there isn't a plus or minus percentile in judging whether this is true or not. Uh, you're speaking of that moss being evidence of an absolute, that guilt can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Is that correct? Yeah, so that was one of the things. Um, I, it was actually a harrowing experience for me, Robert. I mean, I've, I don't mind public speaking, um, uh, talking in front of an audience. I had to do a, my, you know, the PhD um, sort of defense, but I had to present this as a forensic expert in, in the court. And it was sort of quite unique, actually, um, because they, don't, they didn't have just one jury. They actually had two juries. And so they, were, they had both people put on trial at the same time. And rather than having two separate trials, they had the one trial. And each defendant had their own defense attorney and they had their own jury. And so there was, you know, as soon as one defense had finished, the jury would leave and then another jury would walk in and I'd have to go through the same process again. And um, that, those are the sort of questions that the, um, that the defense rightfully asked. Um, we couldn't put a, a, like a 100% definitive um, answer on this, but we could definitely come up with a high degree of probability in terms of time frame. And for certain, it was less than, uh, it had been buried in there for less than six months. And uh, that is beyond all doubt. Listening to everything you've said in this hour that incidentally has gone by incredibly quickly, that's usually indicative of a fine conversation. It would seem that you're not a man who has sung one note. You have a multifaceted life to this extent and looking forward beyond the horizon to many more experiences. Have you thought about writing an autobiography? <laughs> No, it's no, a good question, Robert. <laughs> um, no, I haven't. But um, 
sort of talking to you. So I guess it is nice to um, chat and discuss about one's sort of career and their past and their background because it sort of reinvigorates oneself. Um, I actually never thought about it. It'd be fun to do. Um, maybe sometime in my retirement. I know a, a lot of scientists, and we have a, um, a very famous uh, retired curator named Bill Berger, and in his retirement, he wrote um, three books, and I think he's still writing another one. So it hasn't occurred to me right now. I'm sort of um, I'm just trying to keep afloat with the projects that I have, but maybe in time, it's a uh, it'll be nice to reflect back on all of these opportunities and experiences. Now, young man, uh, just putting your toe in every now and again and finding different things each day, each hour, each minute, where would we find you in 10 years if everything works according to your plan? Well, that's a really, you're rounding up with some great questions, Robert. Um, pretty profound. Uh, very good question. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd still, in my dream world, I would like to um, see myself still here at the Field Museum because I'm just really enjoying my position. I think what I would like to do, though, is, and I'm, and I'm sort of looking forward to, you know, in a few years um, into the future, I do enjoy the administrative part of my position. Um, I enjoy. I really get a lot of satisfaction out of helping others and uh, providing others opportunities and um, and sort of mentoring um, and just sort of administratively helping out um, our towards our mission goals and and strategizing. But in ten years, I'd really like to sort of release myself from a lot of that. And so I can really focus and really return to um, just my science and uh, really because I've, I've got so many uh, projects that I'd like to see fulfilled and accomplished. And I think returning back to that focus is something that, I'd, that I would look forward to. In the bit over a minute we have left, Matt, some final thoughts, especially for the youngsters sitting by the radio, wondering what this is all about, but thinking internally that this is incredibly interesting and fun. Final words for him. Um, final words for them. Uh, number one, stay in school. Uh, number two, we've talked about plant power and science. Um a lot of people think that science can sort of be boring and, you know, like I said, we're just sort of wandering around in, in, in uh, white lab coats and so on. But science can be incredibly fun. And um, if you're – I would never be afraid to ask questions and to be curious about our natural world. And one thing that inspired me when I sort of first started is, you know, we've been describing our natural history for 200 years, over 200 years. And it just intrigued me that when I asked questions about different plants or had different questions, no one would know. No one knew. And there's just so much to be um, uh, known out there, so much to be discovered. And I'm sort of jealous of the youth today, especially because technology is developing at such an incredible pace. And, you know, when I first started, um, we were only just starting really to use DNA tools. Now, looking at sort of whole genomes and big data and so on. And so it's a really exciting, I think it's a, it's a really exciting time in our um, world's history to be growing up with all of these opportunities and these new technologies. And I would encourage everyone to get into science. Certainly appreciate that. And that's a fine coda for a fine program and a very interesting guest. Certainly appreciate it, Matt. And hopefully we can do it again at your discretion. 
Hey, uh, Robert, I've, I've really enjoyed this, and you've actually made me uh, think pretty deeply about a couple of things, so <laughs> great. Marvelous. The program has been seldom said. My name is Robert. Be with us again next time. Mm-hmm.